Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, the Honorable Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. And today, as always, I am joined by the Honorable Bob Bazanko, and I'm currently in Ohio right now. And uh, uh, it's good to see you, uh, Honorable Scott. This is our last show of 2021. We are up near, what, 130 almost, which is really quite amazing. We've done almost 70 just this year alone. As always, we begin this show by thanking all of you you know, hoping that you share this and you share it uh, with, you know, on, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, you subscribe, you rate and review and, you know, tell your friends about it. And uh, uh, the way we're going to start, we've recently in the last few weeks seen a really nice uptick in the number of people listening, uh, which is what we've been kind of aiming for for all this time. So for those of you out there who have been sharing it and telling people about it, we, we thank you again. We're going to start just because we do have a lot of new new listeners and new subscribers. So um, one thing we're going to do is start by kind of telling you a little bit about what we did this year. For those of you who are regulars, you're probably familiar with some of this, but some of the new people uh, might not be aware of just you know how much we've done in 2021. You know, we're going to go over some of our favorite episodes and uh, you know hope that you also share those and. For those of you, especially you new people out there listening, um, we've also really built up our donor base this year, and we're looking to really kind of uh, ramp that up again in 2022. So if you like this, if you're new, or even if you're an old, you know, older subscriber or a regular, uh, and you want to help us out a little bit, we do have a little overhead. And so please feel free to send a few bucks our way. And if you want to do that, Scott's the money guy here. Yeah, uh, definitely, because we're at the end of the year, uh, and you'll be hearing this on the last day of the year. It's the last day of the year, so you can actually still make a donation, and you can write it off. Um, you can go to our website, uh, greenandredpodcast.org, and hit that support button for a one-time donation, or you can go to Patreon, to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a recurring donor. And if you want to give us like a large sum of money, which, you know, we, we encourage that and you want to write it off as a, as a, as a, a tax write off, we actually have a fiscal sponsor that can help you do that. And so all you have to do is email us at greenredpodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com and we can hook that up. And we just want to say much appreciation for everyone who has supported us this year. Big appreciation to all of our Patreon donors, big appreciation to all of our one-time donors. Uh, and a big appreciation to just all of our listeners and want to say a big warm welcome to all of our new listeners. Yeah, we're a scrappy podcast. And I was telling Scott before we came on, we're the uh, best podcast that people have never heard of. And so this year we're going to we're, we're still gunning for Ben Shapiro and Chop Out Trap House and the majority report and a lot of this other stuff that we see and makes us roll our eyes quite a bit. So uh, we do thank you. Um, we're going to start just by talking a little bit about some of the favorite shows we've done last year. And this is for all of you, but especially for our newer listeners, because like I said, we have seen a really nice bounce in just in the last month or six weeks or so. And I think Scott and I would agree uh, that probably, at least for us, the most fun we had in uh, 2021 was our interview in late May with Noam Chomsky. And I don't 
think we really need to explain that. What was cool, I think, was that, you know, for years, Noam Chomsky was unknown to the media. They ignored him, even though he's probably the most intellectual, important intellectual in the world. Uh, and now he's doing a lot of media and they tend to be, you know, very similar, his interviews. So what we did was ask him about the 1960s. And he talked about being at Fred Hampton's funeral and being involved in the anti-war movement and debating McGeorge Bundy. And he talked about cancel culture. And it was really, I think, important as a historical document, but it was also really thrilling, I think, for us personally to be able to talk to this incredible, you know, intellectual and activist who's been doing this for over a half century, well over a half century. Uh, some of my, you know, kind of top picks. First of all, you can actually go to our website, greenredpodcast.org and see blogs by uh, me and soon Bob uh, with, our, with, our, with our top list. But, you know, we also ran a couple of series of episodes this year. Kind of my favorites, like, kind of fall into those categories. We did a series on the climate crisis and the lead up to the climate talks in Glasgow. We did a series on the fall of Afghanistan. We did a series on the Texas freeze, the polar vortex, as it were, earlier in the year. Um, I would say that in my, in my list of, of favorite episodes is that, you know, we, we talked with our uh, friend and comrade, uh, Afghan vet, Grand Klumpner, who, you know, served, I believe, two tours of duty in Afghanistan as an army ranger. And we actually talked a lot about uh, his experience and how he was feeling at the, at the fall of Kabul when the Taliban took over. And I, I just want to, like, highly recommend that episode as well. And I mean, we say this all the time, but it's true. We talk to people who are not going to be um, listened to, who aren't going to be invited on, you know, mainstream podcasts and even on most left podcasts. So that's, I think, one of the things that we really uh, set out to do when we began this and we've carried through. We talked to activists and organizers and people like that. Um, we also recently did a show, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. We talked to Michael Stewart Foley. Mike is a, an old comrade for both of us. And he's recently written a book, which is blowing up. It's uh, called Citizen Cash, The Politics of Johnny Cash. And we had a great interview with him. And uh, uh, if we may brag a little, Scott and I are historians. So I think we were able to kind of get to, you know, have an interview with him that was a little bit different than the others we've heard. But uh, you should definitely check out if you're a Johnny Cash fan or even if you're not a Johnny Cash fan. One of my favorites, if I had to pick a favorite outside of Chomsky for obvious reasons, early in the year, um, one of the first ones we did in 2021, episode 69, if you want to look it up. But uh, we talked to two women who were professors at Collin College in Texas, um, Suzanne Jones and Audra Hayslip, who had been fired. And Collin College in Texas, outside Dallas, uh, the president there, a guy named Matkin, is running roughshod. He's, he's working very closely with the local Collin County Republican Party and, and going after going after professors who, um, you know, who've challenged them and, and Suzanne Jones and Audra Hayslip challenged their COVID reopening policies and they were fired for it. And we had an interview with them and we did our best to try to get people on the left involved in this. It's an issue of solidarity. And they, um, Suzanne has uh, since filed suit and they remain just kind of inspirational figures to us. And so I was really glad we were among those people to, uh, to talk to them about this issue. And the Texas freeze, too, I think Scott mentioned that, but I think that was also kind of really important in, in that regard, too, talking to people in Texas about what's going on here and the, the sordid state of Texas politics, which is really kind of a frightening place. We live in what I now call Taliban-occupied Texas. So um, I, would, I would certainly recommend those. The other probably my other favorite episode of the year. I, I kind of went back and forth about whether it was Noam was number one or this episode, but you know, the day after the Capitol riot, yeah. um, Bob and I actually 
since before the election of 2020 had been on this trajectory of talking about how the ruling class was actually, you know, at odds with the Trump administration. The Trump Trump had like destabilized the country. I mean, there was like four years of constant destabilization. You know, he agitated the left, he agitated street movements, and then the ruling class. He, you know, he also like took a lot of pot shots at like people on Wall Street and you know within you know various business sectors within you know other political sectors within with, at foreign countries who are you know longstanding allies. Uh, and so then, you know, the Capitol riot happens on January 6th. Bob and I talk on January 7th about the ruling class and the Capitol riot. And that was actually, in, in many ways, I feel like one of our best episodes. And I feel like it was like, you know, an important perspective to kind of put out there. There were, you know, they, they talk a lot about shock, the shock doctrine, and they talk about shocks to the system. That was a moment. It was a shock to the system for the ruling class. Bob and I sort of dissected that moment in a, in a really good way. And that's one yeah. of our strong, strongest episodes of the year, in my opinion. I, I think so. And if you want to go back even further into 2020, we did two or three shows like that where, I mean, there was a, an overall left panic going on. Trump is a fascist. There's going to be a coup. And Scott and I were trying to explain why structurally um, things were bad and things are still bad. But we were trying to explain why kind of panic and hysteria were not really very good uh, approaches to this. And, um, you know, we showed how Wall Street and the military especially were adamantly against Trump. And, you know, what what you know, what's really kind of cool is we've been validated uh, in 2021 this year. A bunch of new books have come out about Trump, which have all said what we were saying back then. Uh, the White House staff, you know, knew he had lost. A bunch of Republican judges ruled against him. Uh, the National Association of Manufacturers on January 6th called for the invocation of the 25th Amendment. Mark Milley had since come out, was terrified that Trump was going to do something crazy. So, um, you know, among the hysterics, and I get to take my last pot shot of 2021 at Paul Lewis Street, who's an unhinged writer at Counterpunch. And there are a lot of people like him. There's going to be a coup. Things are bad, but we, you know, it's it's important to have kind of a cold-blooded understanding of the way politics and the ruling class works. Now, we're going to get back to that later to talk about, you know, perhaps relying too much on the ruling class to do our work for us. But uh, I think that show, which was maybe the first show of the year, first or second show of the year, really was important. And of all the, and, and I'm bragging here, obviously, but of all the stuff I heard on that, I, I would put that up against anybody's and mainstream left anybody. I think what we did was unique and it's something that's really critical and it's something I don't think the left understands as well as it, it might. So I, I definitely would agree with you um, on that. That was that was really a crucial show. And the ones we did in late 2020 on that theme were, were really crucial too. It, the, only, the only other episode that I'm gonna throw out with my, my top list, which is also related to a coup, but it's the related to the 1973 coup in Chile where we talked to uh, Professor Clinton Fernandez from uh, Australia, uh, and who had uh, has been doing some, you know, important work in challenging the Australian state to get them to open files on the Australian intelligence agency's support of Pinochet's coup against socialist, democratically elected President Salvador Allende, uh, and that was that, that's also one of my favorite episodes. I love our history episodes. And I particularly like us talking about where an actual coup happened. Um, and I think, I think that is a, is, is, was an important uh, piece of work that we did this year as well. Yeah. And just I'm just going to give you kind of a list of a few others that I thought were really important. We did two episodes 
uh, on the best political movies, uh, best left political movies, uh, which have been really popular. And uh, we're going to do more of that in the coming year. Um, we had a great show about uh, kind of the truth of Jimmy Carter. He's done really great stuff since he left office, but it was a really good historical analysis of Carter, which has gotten a lot of, we got a lot of play on that, um, a lot of good feedback on that. Uh, we did a tribute to the great Walter Lefebvre and the new left after his death. We recently had on Alex Vitale talking about policing and he's the guy to go to on that. And we also, oh, go ahead. You're going to, oh, and we've also done a lot of um, shows uh, because the left should be global and we do believe in international solidarity. And so we've done some great shows on that. We did one with Sarah Kulabdara about with a group called Legacies of War about the unexploded ordinance, the UXOs in Laos called 80 million bombs in Laos, which is a fantastic historical document. We had shows in Iran with Eskandar Bourgadi, who's a, a friend of ours, uh, a great show on Cuba, where amid those Miami contrived protests, you had people on the left supporting him, which was just utterly repugnant to us. And um, just a, a ton of stuff. Uh, Clinton shows on Oz were fantastic. And we could go on and on, but we don't want to kind of, but go to our, uh, go to the webpage. You can go to the Apple podcast front page or Spotify or any of them and just go down the list. Cause uh, especially people who are new or, you know, regular listeners, give it a second chance, listen to it again. But, um, you know, we, we do this, we certainly don't do it to make money, uh, or to become famous, uh, because Scott and I already are famous. We're honorable now. Right. Uh, and you know, when the revolution comes, Scott's going to be the minister of, I forget what culture or something like that, or, uh, and, and I'm going to be the, the minister of foreign affairs I've decided. So, um, but, uh, we have on guests that don't get talked to, uh, you're probably not going to hear them on democracy now, or you're certainly not going to hear them on Chapo or any of the Jacobin inspired or majority report jibber jabber that you hear, which is mostly celebrity snark and it's just annoying. I, we were listening to a show last night where they went off and we're going to do a show on this soon. Uh, to give you a heads up on it. We're going to do a show now because Oliver Stone is back in the news with his uh, JFK conspiracy theories, which the left is just swallowing up. And I mean, you can't sit around and make fun of QAnon and all this batshit crazy election stuff and then suck up this, this ridiculousness that the CIA killed Kennedy because he was too much of a peacenik. He was too much of a dub. So we're going to do a show on that. But that's what you're getting on a lot of left media. We're talking to people on the ground Scott and uh, our good friend Jay Conroy were in Minnesota uh, for line three. And we did, I think, three did three interviews with you guys. Um, we did great stuff on COVID uh, and on labor. We have two people we call our either consultants or correspondents, Sarah Coster and Mike Elk. And we've gone to them many times this year to talk about COVID and labor issues. So um, just I, I mean, I could go on and on and on. But, you know, just, uh, we're doing good stuff and we're talking to people you need to hear. So just just as a sort of wrap up on our like talking about our end of year, I, I do want to throw out a couple of names of people who kind of like behind the scenes support mm. the Green and Red podcast. One top one, I would say, is our awesome editor, uh, Isaac Silk, uh, who is on a much deserved vacation right now. But like big props, Isaac is the is the sort of glue that holds the Green and Red podcast together behind the scenes. I also want to thank our executive consultant on a number of our, our scripts and questions, which is our um good friend and also former guest, uh, Jeff Ordauer. And then as, and, and then I also want to thank our, um, our, uh, uh, our friend, uh, Tobin, who actually does a lot of work on like a lot of our design, he, the postcards that we've been putting out this year, 
Um, Tobin designed that. He designed our logo. He's, he's a great friend of the podcast as well. And then as always, I want to thank our executive producer, Hepburn Ingham, who, you know, is the, is the sort of like soul of the Green and Red podcast in many ways. And so, you know, big props to him uh, just to put that out there as well. And, and he is a hero of the working class. So a champion of the working class. As champion well. of the working class, executive producer at the Green and Red podcast, Hepburn Ingham. He, he is. He's one of the greatest men of all time in history. He's right up there with just all of them. Martin Luther King and Genghis Khan and you name them. And Hep is up there with them. Right? Exactly. Not say Dong. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's also been a guest on the podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, now I think we're going to get into a little bit of the our sort of uh, rumination on uh, this past year and like what we're looking at in the future. Uh, you know, you may have noticed the title of this episode is Winter in America, which is this is what we're going to talk about a little bit. We're going to kick it off with a quote from one of our favorite philosoph philosophers and poets, Gil Scott Heron, where he said, turn around, turn around, turn around, and you may come full circle and be new here again. And so uh, that kind of like just jumps us into where we are on December 31st, 2021. As we as we jump into the um, what is like not a great period in you know in our, our current times. Yeah, you know, last year um, we did this, and the theme was kind of hopeful, right? Um, we had seen this like really massive uprising in the streets. Trump was gone, and we had no illusions about Biden. But you know, getting rid of Trump is was something to celebrate, um, and I think. Speaking for myself, um, I'm not so hopeful this year. There is a, I think despair is kind of nosed ahead uh, of hope right now. So, um, you know, at the end of last year, I think um, Scott and I, and, and there were people on the left who clearly weren't like this. We, we wanted Trump to lose. We thought it was important that, that Joe Biden win the election because elections are, are a tactic. Um, we don't believe in the strategy of electoralism where you throw all your eggs into that basket, which I think most people, liberals certainly, and, and even people on the left do that. Um, and I don't think we were, we weren't really naive that Biden was going to somehow go to the left or anything like that. Um, were we? No, we weren't, we weren't like that. But we did hope that um, this would create new openings and new spaces. And um, you, uh, Scott, is really has both feet in the organizing and activism and street politics world far more than I do. And so I think what, what was your take? Why were you, you know, why, why did you see some sense of hope because Trump was gone and you had seen all these people in the streets? What, what was kind of, what was going to follow up on that last year? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I was, well, one, I think Trump was a, I, I think Trump was a, a real threat. He was a real danger. I mean, he ran his presidential campaign on going after anti-fascist and Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, dispatched homeland, special homeland security squads to places like Portland and Chicago to go after, to go after protesters. And, you know, there's, there's like some scary stuff involved with that. I don't think it was a coup and I don't think Trump's a fascist. I think he just like kind of pushed the edge as much as he could um, to, you know, being like a, he was more like Lester Maddox, right? The, the, uh, um, governor of the former segregationist era governor of of, uh, of Georgia who wanted to kind of like bash heads, um, and I think I, I think that what buoyed me was 
one, we did mobilize a lot of people to like vote out the Trump people. And, um, you know, the system in many ways was challenged by the right and the far right um, to like not certify the election, which I never really was worried wasn't going to happen. Um, but I was also like, I, I never really thought Joe Biden was going to be anything more than the corporate Democrat that he's always been. I mean, he was like in the Senate for, you know, 40 years before he was in the vice presidency to a super neo uh, super neoliberal um, administration who, you know, they didn't torture people like the Bush administration. They just killed them with drones. Um, sort of, sort of politic. And I, I was at least hopeful that we weren't going to have just like this sort of unhinged sort of person sitting in the white house that, you know, that street movements actually did have an impact. Um, the, the sort of, and, and there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of important street actions, campaigns, things like that that aren't necessarily connected to electoralism, both in the environmental world and the labor world. I mean, we've seen like the powerful campaign against the line three pipeline in northern Minnesota, but then, you know, Biden still certified it. Uh, we've seen a lot of strikes. Um, we've seen a lot of like union drive in places like, you know, Bessemer, Alabama against Amazon, but we've also saw the John Deere and Kellogg strikes. Um, and, and so there's a lot of like, things that I look forward to, but it's all mostly connected to like street action, whether it's like climate, racial justice, labor, et cetera. And so I, I have no faith that the Democrats act like it's 1992 again. Yeah. Um, or 2008. That, yeah. Or 2008, right? Yeah, there's Clinton and Obama redox, right? Well, you know, the, the, what's, what struck me and what really encouraged me about those protests in, in uh, 2020 from, you know, really late May through pretty much the whole summer was that, you know, there are estimates that 25 to 30 million people went into the streets. It occurred in all 50 states, 1,500 different places. And I think what that did was essentially shock the ruling class um, because, you know, there were a lot of left debates and there still are and castigation over the targets. Uh, in fact, they attacked target grocery target stores, department stores, right? But banks were attacked. Uh, police precincts were burnt. Um, statues were toppled. And I think what this did was convince the corporate ruling class, the banks and the corporations that um, Trump was a force for turmoil and mayhem. And that could only harm the what their biggest interest which is the bottom line right it's not good for business if your country's falling apart it's not good for investment if your country's falling apart if the rest of the world looks upon you like a failed state and i think that forced those people to act and so you had major banks saying black lives matter you had harley davidson and and um nascar removing confederate flags and making statements about black lives matter the national basketball association dedicated its playoffs that year in the bubble to a virtual Black History seminar. And so what that did, I think, was kind of, and, and we talked about this in those shows in 2020, and then again in the Capitol Hill riots in the ruling class, it forced them to step in <clears throat> and take over the reins. People like Jamie Dimon and Mark Milley were really important in that regard. Um, and the idea there was that there is kind of a corporate liberal class, not all, not all uh, capitalists are the same. You have these extractive, uh, what we call the lump and oligarchs, people like Joe Manchin. We can talk about that later if you want. Um, but you also have kind of uh, uh, capitalists who have to, 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 to understand, who understand we live in a global market. 
and you know that this kind of of uh, turmoil uh, with Trump and Trump wasn't a fascist per se. Trump has no ideology other than Trump and 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 cruelty. Uh, but it, it wasn't good for business, and they stepped in. And you know, my hope was that what that would do was create space that there were these fractures or fissures among the ruling class and people in the streets uh, or, or maybe even some of the Democrats could enter those spaces. And, and that's, I think, what we haven't seen. But um, I think it's important that those people in the streets force that action. I have I, I think that's critical because without those 30 million people in the streets, there would not have been the impetus. And the fact that those 30 million people kind of all went into hibernation, not all 30 million, but a lot of those went into hibernation especially after the election, um, is really distressing. I'll say this one thing about Trump is that they were actually, the, the ruling class was okay with Trump up until February, March, 2020. He, he was vulgar and he like shit talked on Twitter, but you know, they were real happy with him when he passed a, a corporate tax, uh, tax cut. And there were, you know, his, his policies in many ways, I mean, he was racist and there was a lot of like anti-immigration border stuff that he did, but like most of his policies weren't that much different than Reagan and Bush, et cetera. And so I also think that there's a, a certain level where the ruling class was okay with him up until, you know, his incompetence really shined through with the, 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 with the pandemic and then his sort of like vulgar Twitter shit talking like really exploded you know, like action in the streets. I, I, I do want to, I do want to put that out there. I think that's important well, to know. Yeah. I mean, and, and no doubt that his utter failure with COVID, which um, I remember saying, well, nobody could do worse, but we can get to that later too. But I mean, even before that, um, I think that the 2017 tax cut was huge. And, and Lloyd Blankfein, who had been the, the head of Goldman Sachs, even said that we, we made a deal with the devil. And after that, you know, we really didn't have any use for him. But even in 2019, if you looked at the polls in 2019, Biden and Bernie Sanders were both ahead of Trump. And, and on issues like immigration and tariffs, there are significant elements of the ruling class who oppose Trump because they want cheap labor. And we're seeing that now with the so-called labor shortage, because one of the reasons is immigration has been cut off. And the tariffs have been, you know, for a lot of industries have been disastrous. So Trump never had that kind of, of um, support. I mean, remember in 2016, Hillary Clinton just obliterated Trump in terms of contributions from Wall Street and from hedge funds. And they lost, which if there's any reason for the left to have hope, it's I think it's Trump's 2016 campaign, which is the model, right? It's insane. The fact that this guy who went full on Bullworth and he won. So maybe there is some hope for that. But yeah, I, I think he alienated key segments of that. And and with him gone and, and, you know, I think those of us who believe in a better world might be better served that Trump stays around a little longer because you know, he is sowing mayhem, even among his own people. I, yeah, I do. I honestly think that the probably Nancy Pelosi's of the world and their whatever whacked out strategies they have are like probably pretty happy that the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gaetzes yeah. are still around because it's someone to run against Lauren Boebert. You know, it's, it's people to run against. Um, I'm sure they are happy to have them in Congress as long as, as they can fundraise off of that. Right? That's That's been their whole, that's their life, right? The other guys are worse. That's all they got. We're not them, you know, it's uh, <laughs> the, and the, and the a kinder, gentler. About, well, I'm sorry. Well, the, and the scary thing about it is like those, the, the, there's a big focus on the sort of the, that particularly unhinged part of the far right, whereas yeah. like the far right that is you know, in power in Texas and Florida and the Supreme Court, 
are actually actively dismantling, yeah. um, you know, things that have been around for 50 or 60 years, like voting rights or, you know, Roe. Um, and so that's also an important thing is that the, uh, the less unhinged piece parts of the Republican Party who, you know, probably aren't that politically different than Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates no, are actually no, no. are like doing a whole lot to, you know, undermine civil society. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. They, they want, I said that the Democrats, we said the Democrats think it's 1992 or 2008. That that wing of the Republican Party wants to take us back to 1954. Yeah. It's Tony Soprano, right? It's 1954. 18, it's 1954 in this house. So no, no, that that's absolutely true. Um, you know, the the getting rid of Trump and 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 the kind of various forces arrayed against them should have been like kind of an opening. And you know, you can't th- those folks aren't on our side. You know, the Jamie Diamonds and Millie and those people aren't on our side, but they served a purpose at a particular point in time. But you can't count on that. And, and absent pressure. And I think one of the biggest problems we had and, and something we talked about here was, you know, there were there were a whole series of actions planned in November if Trump tried to monkey wrench the election. Well, it was clear that Joe Biden won really election night and then officially a few days later. And all of those groups stood down. And I think that was a huge, huge error because what it did was give Trump 10 weeks of clear air time, just with no opposition to peddle these insane election conspiracy theories. And they took hold because the Democrats basically, well, we won and we know we're going to win, you know, but what they did was give this, this oxygen. And now you have, you know, significant, I think a majority of Republicans believe this, this insane, these insane election theories, even though Republican, you know, whoever thought that the profiles of Kurds would be the Georgia Republican Party, right? They stood up to Trump as much as anybody have, right? And, you know, throughout that period from November, whatever it was, November 2nd, November 3rd, through January 6th, at least, um, the Democrats did virtually nothing. They just sat there, you know, essentially, you know, and, and, and all they did was they won the presidency. They did, they did lousy. They did less, you know, less than they should have in the Senate and the House races. They, but to be honest, what they did was they punched left. Like if they yeah. if they were if they were taken, they, they didn't do anything. They they shut down the there was a um the, the sort of coalition was called like protect the election yeah. or whatever it was. They like sat on them and then they they punched left. And and they and, and it's not even like they punched left on the like the sort of like Black Lives Matter anarcho like street protests. I mean, they were punching left on like members of their own house delegation, the squad. It was like yeah. that we need to stop talking about Medicare for all and socialism and, and things like that. Like they didn't punch right. They punched left. And they and then yeah. they sat down on any like sort of like um, street activity. It's ama- it was amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, COVID was uh, so catastrophic. If, if there was ever uh, uh, an opening to kind of do something about the healthcare system in the United States, medical system in the U.S. And, and even if you don't want to go as far as socialized medicine, you could have done something. Because, you know, nobody's happy. I don't know anybody who loves their private insurance. Maybe some really wealthy people do. And they sat on that. I mean, they have always been way more aggressive going after their left flank, whether it be Bernie Sanders in 2016 or the squad or, or whatever than they have in taking on Trump. And so, yeah, they essentially sat on their hands and just let Trump have the field for all this craziness. And if you read the books on it, and I've read a few of them already, everyone in the White House knew they stayed away from them. Meadows, all these people who are really horrific, but Meadows, Jared Kushner, uh, everybody, Barr, everybody told Trump you lost. It was, it was, you know, at the end of the day, it was Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. 
This is who was like running the freaking country, Trump, Powell, and, and Giuliani. And the Democrats did nothing in that. They they sat tight. Um, they ran a miserable campaign in 26, in 2020. They lost Senate seats that they should have won. It should have never come down to people like Manchin and Cinema being able to hold this this hostage. And and so, you know. It's it's also important to note that the, the week of the Capitol riot that that the you know most vocal opponents of that sort of you know let's call trump's movement stop the steal because that's what they call it but like the most vocal opponents of what happened that week came from the cheneys it yeah. was it was a you know, a statement in the washington post with all 10 living secretaries of defense including cheney including donald rumsfeld before he you know unceremoniously journeyed off to hell um mm -hmm. and 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 that was all instigated by Lynn Cheney, we have found out since. And, and so it's really important to note that, you know, the sort of big public, you know, oppositions to this all came from, you know, the, I don't want to call them moderate Republicans, but let's call them like less unhinged Republicans. Yeah. Well, and then the Republican Party is split. Uh, and you do have I mean, you have these, this new, I don't even know what you want to call them, this new group of atavistic Republicans like oh, Matt and the, Gates. And the other person that week was Millie too, just to throw that out. Yeah. Well, you have Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all them who, but there are, you know, significant numbers of Republicans who, who you know, are, are Bush, Cheney Republicans. I mean, what's striking to me is like, I would have never, I mean, I would have bet big money that no one is going to win a political battle against the Cheneys. I just, because they're, they're vicious. I mean, Dick Cheney's. You know, he shot his best friend and the guy apologized to him. Right. Uh, and 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 the fact that that Cheney is now the voice, the anti-Trump voice, more so than really any Democrat is. Uh, and the Democrats are dragging along. They're issuing subpoenas. It's been a year, you know, and, and uh, stripped of all her power. Yeah. Like third, yeah. third most powerful member of the House. Yeah. And stripped of it all of the Republican delegation. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's the, the big game right now is to see, you know, who's going to win the battle for the soul. I mean, is it going to be the Cheney wing? Is it going to be, are they going to do enough to to stop the Trump? Because right now, I mean, you're you're looking at, you know, a world of Kevin McCarthy as the, the Speaker of the House. And I mean, because in 2022, barring something that I can't even imagine, it's going to be a bloodbath. The Democratic Party is just going to, going to get swamped, uh, even though redistricting actually went better than than they thought it would. And but the point is, we're talking about elections here. I mean, I think the bigger point is that there's there are there are significant limits in in relying on, you know, uh, waiting for a savior to, to, to come in and, and say, you know, rescue you. And so um, the idea behind beating Trump was that it would create space for people to create autonomous movements, mutual aid, different kinds of groups, unions. And we have seen some of that. Uh, some of the union stuff has been inspiring. And a lot of that's been done by the rank and file, not, not the membership. We saw mutual aid groups emerge all over the country. I was just listening to a podcast yesterday about mutual aid networks, and they're exponentially larger and still doing a lot of work of, of you know, for years it's been supporting houseless people and um you know, the elderly, et cetera. But now with the pandemic, they grew exponentially and they're still actually doing a whole lot. You know, they're making hand sanitizer, they're delivering groceries, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, it was in, in previous eras and, and these groups still exist too, we had food, not bombs, but now that's like just taken off everywhere in, in, yeah. in a much more significant way than we have ever seen. Probably since like, you know, 
decades ago. Well, and those are entry points for people to get involved in politics. I mean, the right wing has the advantage of having like a lot of churches and gun clubs, right? Which are just natural and organic places for them to organize people, you know, and, and that's the entry, that's the gateway drug to like QAnon and, and stuff like that. And the left doesn't really have that, you know, um, it, the left is very civil. They don't like to get, you know, down and dirty and fight. We, uh, it's, it's not a group. I mean, you have like Unitarians and stuff, but you know, it's not a group that's going to organize in churches the way the right wing does. Um, I don't know. We don't really have an equivalent of gun clubs, I guess, maybe jazzercise, you know, who classes in the suburbs or something like that, you know, but brunch club, brunch clubs, um, brunch clubs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say that it's a, it's a smaller percentage of the, of the left, but you know, we, we say a lot of like anarchist and anti-fascist groups, which are like pretty active, but if we're talking about liberals, they're like, you know, it's, it's all, it's all sort of, uh, um, it, with liberals, it's, it's now that Biden's in, it's like, we can go back to brunch. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. The, the, the sort of intense period of Trump, like 2016 to 2021, January, 2021, in many ways has de-escalated. Sure. Right? Yeah. We still, we still see like anarcho groups and anti-fascist groups still doing a lot, but it's, it's, it's like not, we're not seeing that big liberal wave of people hitting yeah. them, joining them in the streets. Even if it's well, a if it million people in a women's march, in a permitted march, you know we're we're now just seeing the the sort of more left groups, far left groups doing stuff, and that's it. Yeah, and and you know with the right, with the Republicans, even the so-called sane Republicans, right? They'll defend the far right. I mean Gates and Green. I mean they're they're not disavowing these folks. They're kind of snarky, like Crenshaw, you know, who's a Republican, kind of called them performative. But for the most part, there there's no limit to what they can get away with. Whereas um, liberals have always distanced themselves from Antifa. Uh, they may make kind of performative overtures, like wearing kente cloth and kneeling, like Pelosi did, to Black Lives Matter. But when people are in the streets, they they condemn them, right? Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, uh, they equate violence with putting a brick through a bank window, um, and they really disavow these people. So. Uh, you know, the furthest right has, you know, the, the Republican Party has their backs, no matter how crazy. I mean, they're defending the, the January 6th people. These are people who violently entered the Capitol, you know, and, and they're defending them. They're calling them political prisoners, whereas with the left, they're condemning. Five people got killed. Yeah, people got killed. And, they, you know, they killed cops, right? Um, but on the left, you know, as soon as somebody puts on Black Block or, or you know, says or does the wrong thing or actually goes toe-to-toe, in Portland with the, with the feds. Or, um, or if it's lots of black people or brown people or native people, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, the left, the left runs away. So they're playing by rules that haven't been around for a long time. They're playing by rules that haven't existed for a long time. They want this civility and, you know, Biden, I mean, the whole bipartisanship thing, I understand for, as an election, but it, it looks like he really believes in this bullshit, you know? And um, you know, what, one thing that was important, like in the sixties, both the civil rights and anti-Vietnam movements, which could be very aggressive. You know, that's the thing people don't understand about King. King called it militant nonviolence. Martin Luther King wasn't just sitting around letting people beat the hell out of, you know, Southerners who were protesting. Um, what I think that liberals don't understand is you need that kind of aggressive resistance and they run away from it. They believe that it's, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 going to be a deterrent. To, it's going to be, it's going to damage their interests. So you have, 
uh, you know, political scientists, E.J. Dion, Roy Teixeira, these are kind of fetid people who want to blame Black Lives Matter, want to blame Antifa for everything that happened. And, you know, in, in the initial stages, and you and I have talked about this, 54% of Americans supported burning down the police precinct. Black Lives Matter had big majority support. And it and 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 they were just left left out to, to, to dry, right? The Democratic Party distanced themselves, and so that support continued to wane. And now they're saying, oh, see, nobody supports them all yet, or defund the police or something like that. Well, yeah, because nobody had their back in the 60s. You had significant members of the ruling class. Uh, you know, Fulbright came out against the Vietnam War and provided cover for the anti-war movement. It is a lot easier, and that's what we we're saying about like last year with the ruling class. It's a lot easier if you're in the streets to have you know, if not at least to support uh, groups like Citibank or uh, American Airlines or, or, or whoever, right? Major League Baseball, Millie. It's, it's a lot better if they're not resisting you. It's the, it's the idea of the radicals claim, right? It's like <laughs> we, have, we have a sort of militant movement on the streets and in the communities, which honestly make those more towards the center. I'm not saying to the, I'm not saying like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama center, but like who, who make those more palatable to the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so like probably with the civil rights movement, the radical flanks can be the Black Panthers or the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X, et cetera. And so, you know, in, in many ways in this sort of anti-Trump era, the, the radical flank is gonna be anti-fascist, it's gonna be anarchist, it's gonna be Black Lives Matter. Uh, groups and protests and streets. It's more of a moment than a movement as we yeah. talked about many times on this, on this show, but um, it's, it's an important thing to recognize. And then the Democrats and the institutional left and the state or whatever else you want to call it, basically wages war on the left more mm-hmm. than on the right. I think that may have changed a little bit with this sort of like anti, with this, with, with Trump a little bit and with the proud boys and the far right, et cetera. But still, you know, it's a long history of waging war on the left. <clears throat> even though the radical flank gives them a lot of cover. Yeah. I mean, and they'll continue to war, but you're right. I mean, uh, if the FBI wants to go after the Proud Boys, I, I go ahead, go for oh, it, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I have no problem. <laughs> but but I, you're right, because the war on the left is not going anywhere. Like, no, it's never. I, I, never I, spent, I, I spent a lot of time in anti-pipeline movements yeah. for a decade, but also this year around line three. And I, I promise you, the police state, the FBI, Oh, sure, sure. All of those, all of those agencies and entities are like very much all up in the shit of those anti-pipeline yes. movements. But I think you know that the, the point because because I, I I felt worse this year actually politically than I did in in twenty twenty, um, because you know I didn't expect anything out of the Democratic Party. I don't believe that elections it's a tactic. If you want to vote, that's cool. Um, but I was hoping that there would be kind of more autonomous organizing and resistance just in the streets and in the grassroots. I think one of the problems we have too is that a lot of people, because it's Biden have let up. So you have like, you know, border policies really haven't changed at all. I mean, I think in some cases deportations have increased, right? And you saw that horrific sight of, you know, these ICE agents on horseback whipping Haitians, right? And the left, which would have been up in arms, utterly apoplectic liberals about that when Trump did it, were, were virtually silent. You know, AOC has changed, you know, she doesn't call them concentration camps anymore. And I think this is the real problem we have. I mean, you know, the GOP will attack anybody who deviates a little bit from the Trump line, whereas now Biden can go out and basically become Trump light 
or I'm not even I mean, basically Trump. He's he's almost a doppelganger. I mean, COVID has been it, it's a disaster. It's a fucking disaster. I don't know how you can, you know. I, I mean, what did what is what has Biden done differently than Trump? I'm not being an asshole. I really don't know. I mean, I I, I, I totally I totally agree. I, I was actually as you were talking, thinking about Afghanistan and the events of uh, yeah. this past of this past summer. Biden also pulled the troops out of Afghanistan, which is what Trump was trying to do for a while. Uh, and you know the the liberal wing turned on him. Yeah. In the in the sort of lefty socialist podcast world, we saw them supporting that, and and yeah. I think you and I were like pretty much on board with that as well. But it's a, it's oh, a yeah. thing to note that the the media who have been like sort of devouring and chewing on Trump, national security establishment, liberals, and the Democratic Party all turned on Biden on that. So actually, what I frankly think was the moment where he, his polls sank. There were, and you know, again, when when he initially withdrew from Afghanistan, I think like nearly seventy percent of Americans supported it. But after that month of drumbeat from the liberal media, you know, the numbers were down below fifty percent. And and the reality is, nobody gave a shit about Afghanistan for twenty years. They hadn't given a shit about Afghanistan. I mean, the media also they need the spectacle, and Biden is boring as shit. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, Trump every day was was a was a was a volcano. He was, you know. Uh, uh, but Fulmina, as the Italians would say, just this fucking lightning and thunder, you know, and, and Biden, I mean, the people who are consulting, you know, who are advising him and the people who are running that, are they really that bad? I mean, they have like no concept of going out into the public and nothing. Right. And then, you know, you have uh, uh, two people in his own party have monkey wrenched basically his entire domestic agenda, you know, mansion and, and cinema. And I don't know how much you know, arm wrangling, he's done either. But again, it keeps going back to this idea. And this is why we talked to so many organizers and activists that um, there ain't no hero coming to the rescue. There ain't some guy on a horse with a white hat, you know, uh, Gary Cooper, John Wayne or whoever. It's not going to happen. And the time is short. Politics is, as you, politics as usual, legislative solutions and fixes and things like that are not, what's going to save us from what we talk about on the show of these cascading crises, crises, right? I always have to correct myself when I say these cascading crises, climate, pandemic, economics, new gilded age, this political crisis of a rising far right, you know, it's not going to happen in Washington. It's not going to help happen in beltway politics. It's going to happen. All of us going out and taking a little action and getting very involved and doing a lot of stuff. And not just like tweeting and clicking yeah. away. We're not going to click our way into the into um, the next era, right? Social media is malignant. Yeah, definitely listen to this podcast, but then also go out and you know take a lot of action and get involved. Which is one of the reasons that we bring a lot of organizers and activists yeah. on this show to kind of talk about like what regular people are doing. These aren't Ivy League educated people. These aren't media superstars. These are folks who are like doing a lot of shit and getting a lot of shit done. Yeah, we're not part of the uh, Brooklyn establishment. Well, I mean, one of the things, that, and we've said this before, that, that I keep going And, and by the way, the Brooklyn is, establishment, just to say it one more time, are not organizers and they don't actually understand organizing. They're, they're, the they're, snarky, they're snarky failed comedians. Yeah, who make a lot of money. but because Yeah, of, whose political analysis is garbage. And, yeah. and oh yeah. my God, I hate them more all the time. You know, they, they have, what's, this, what's the new uh, history show? Jack and putting out hinge points, right? where they take an event and what would happen if it had been different, like fucking opposite day in history. That's embarrassing. 
that's like a fucking Disney premise, you know, and, and this is the left or the, that majority report last night where they're going on with these QAnon theories about JFK. Come on. We are talking to people who are, who are actually in the streets and, and, you know what, the, the thing that gets me, and we've talked about this in, in two very concrete examples are Georgia and Texas. I live in Texas, so I know that well. I mean, Texas is running roughshod. The majority of pro-life Republicans don't support the Texas abortion law, which includes bounties in it, like the Fugitive Slave Law did, right? But when that was being deliberated, there, nothing was happening in Austin. I mean, nobody was slamming the Capitol. Nobody was doing sit-ins. Nobody was blocking traffic. Nobody was going to American Airlines or Dell Computers to protest. Nothing. Nothing was happening. They're signing petitions and move on, and they're filing court challenges. Why? What? What? What is this obsession, this fetish that the left has, the liberals have with the courts? I mean, the courts are a political institution, and in the Fifth Court in New Orleans, they would they would reinstitute slavery if it showed up before them, right? They're not going to they're not going to get rid of this Texas abortion law. And in Georgia, you know, as much as people love Stacey Abrams, she did a hell of a job. Georgia is essentially a blue state, right? Biden won and they have two Democratic senators. Yet they just passed this this law in Georgia, which doesn't only suppress votes, but it basically says that the Georgia legislature can just simply overturn the results of the election. So a Democrat could win Georgia by, you know, 300,000 votes in the, the state ledge, which is gerrymandered to be Republican majority could overturn it. And again, nothing was happening. People weren't blocking streets. People weren't going to Kemp's house. They weren't going to the neighborhoods of people in the legislature. They weren't going to CNN or Delta Airlines. Nothing. So, you know. Coca-Cola. Um, Coca-Cola, yeah. Uh, I think this is like a, a kind of important, an important thing to flag is that, is that the everyone focuses on the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Cates and Donald Trumps who are trying to essentially kind of pull a um, failed state sort of move and just like uncertify an election that he lost by like six or seven million votes. But the, but the real insidious right-wing push here is that they're just changing all the laws so that, you know, it's harder to vote. It's harder to register to vote. It's, it's everything. That's how the, that's how, that's how it really gets done. And that's, yeah. that's an important thing to, to, uh, um, just kind of keep in mind. And we need we need mass movements. Like I, I I did see some protests in Texas and Georgia, but it was like it, it should have been like thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people, and it and it wasn't. And it's just like an important thing to note. And it should have definitely been much more coordinated with um, the sort of more liberal establishment in those states. Who who you know we won't even go into the failings of Democratic Party politics in red states. And and a lot of the resistance when it did happen was just performance art. You know, it was the kind of a continuation of Pelosi ripping Trump's speech up or wearing kente cloth or, you know, having these, you know, kind of people testifying Congress. And um, there's this sense that everything is going to be OK. There's there's you know, I, I didn't in 2020. You and I were, were I think, very calm and rational and, and we were right. You know, I mean, to, to throw around terms like this is a fascist country, this is Nazi Germany, Trump is Hitler. That that's a lot. And and the fact is, like, these guys are dangerous, but you sound kind of hysterical because you are. I mean, this country wasn't close as bad as it was to any of those things. And so panic and hysteria and what that did was paralyze people. It made them afraid to do anything, which is really, I think, the biggest problem. Uh, but I'm more uneasy now than I was then, <clears throat> because um, essentially, you know, Trump, Trump was an easy target, right? He was sending people in the streets. He was tweeting. He was just insane. 
But now you have this stuff being done legally, right? The, the, the state ledges are, are passing laws and courts are upholding them. And you have the, the likes of, you know, people like uh, Hawley and Cruz uh, and, and Gosar and, and Jim Jordan. They should all be in jail, right? And nothing's, there's no recriminations there. Uh, the instead, Democrats. the Republican Party is trying to put people like Jim Jordan on the January 6th commission. Right, right, right. And, and, and you know, throw an hissy fit when they don't get their way about it. I mean, that's almost a year now, January 6th. And, and the Republicans will probably run out the clock because they'll, they'll have the House again in, you know, in, in January of 2023. I mean, it just took forever. Uh, there's no sense of urgency. I think there's a real sense of unease. I'm more uneasy now than I was last year. I, I still, you know, the whole idea of fascism and everything. But people like Tom Cotton, I think, are, are scary. And uh, uh, Cruz and, and Hawley. DeSantis, DeSantis. DeSantis, right. Uh, Abbott in, in Texas. Um, these people are, are, are not quite as, you know, over the top as, as Trump. And, you know, it's, it's a problem. And, you know, uh, when you're faced with an opposition, the Washington generals of politics, um, you know, you're in trouble and, you know, the squad is always put forward as the, uh, you know, the main resistance, but, you know, that's like six people and, you know, they're, they're not very powerful. I mean, honestly, like, you know, there was a, earlier in the year, there was this big thing, you know, force a vote on Medicare for all. <laughs> and, you know, there was a big uproar on the left because the squad wouldn't do that. Well, you know, maybe they should have, maybe they should have, but, you know, what, what good does it do to force a vote and get beat like 430 to, you know, 35 or something like that, you know, for five. Um, I, I think people just, there's, there's no imagination and you have to kind of throw a bunch of this stuff out, you know, for mutual aid. I mean, people on the left love to look at history, but I'm, unfortunately, I think they often look at it, you know, in, in, in not necessarily a useful way. And, you know, organizing for elections and organizing for court cases and filing charges and, you know, the ACLU and the NAACP and groups like that can only go so far. And at some point, you know, you need to kind of take, take uh, political matters into your own hands. And we're not seeing that to the extent we need to. And there are people doing great stuff. And we've talked to some of them, the, the Line 3 stuff. And the KXL was canceled, which was, you know, that's a victory, right? Although Joe Manchin wants to restore now. Um, you know, Alex Vital talked, Vitale talked a lot about some of the actual reforms we've seen in policing in the United States. Um, it's not a huge amount, but stuff's being done. Austin has is, is defunded the police to a certain extent. Um, some cities have replaced uh, the police with other types of unarmed units to uh, deal with, you know, things like traffic violations. Um, some cities are now using trained professionals to deal with mental health cases rather than the police. I mean, the police know how to do one thing, which is to, you know, use violence to, to de-escalate a situation. I mean, you de-escalate a situation by shooting people, right? Uh, so, um, I mean, stuff's getting done. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's important to, we've, we've talked a lot about Beltway politics today, but I, yeah. I think it's really important to note a theme with especially our guests it was you know it was a actually big topic that we talked about with professor vitale is that is that you know locally community-oriented groups which are i wouldn't call them liberal per se but they're but they are doing a whole lot of local organizing whether it's on climate whether it's on the pandemic whether it's mutual aid whether it's against the police what have you uh they're doing actually a lot of work that actually is really going to matter in you know a longer term a longer term period like there's all this sort of media hype that we see in the beltway around January 6th or you know Joe Manchin and versus Biden on this yeah you know, build back better 
bill, et cetera, but the kind of important work that everyone listening to this show should really kind of think about and get involved if you're not already involved. It's like, there's a whole lot of groups, you know, pick your, pick your issue and go get involved. And, you know, grassroots organizing, direct action are like really important um, uh, things that need to be happening right now. I, we had a show earlier at the beginning of the year called Why 2021 Needs More Direct Action, you know, that the, the message of that has not changed at all. Maybe I'll put another article out called Why We Need More Direct Action in 2022. Yeah. But uh, just like sort really important thing to kind of keep in mind is that like you all matter and you all need to go out and do stuff. Don't just sit around and yell at the internet. Yeah. I mean, two of our most frequent, our two most frequent contributors, um, Sarah Coster on COVID and Mike Elk on labor, I think really spoke to that, you know, the kind of stuff people are doing outside of this kind of political framework, they're creating, you know, public health clinics, they're, they were offering uh, COVID vaccines, they're bringing food to people who need it to homeless communities. Mike talked about uh, uh, grassroots labor organizing, uh, where the union leadership wasn't terribly useful, but people kind of were were, uh, you know, at, at Amazon, at the uh, coal, the coal strike in Alabama, which I keep forgetting. Um, you know, we talked about uh, IATSE and John Deere and Kellogg. This has been a, a bigger strike year, striketober, we called it. Um, and so there are people doing things. And, and first, I mean, first ever Starbucks stores have been unionized in the last two weeks. Right. And, and, and now it's spreading. It's, it's now yeah. they're having union drives in Starbucks uh, across the country. Well, and, you know, one good thing is this, these so-called labor shortages, nobody wants to work, right? I mean, I think workers are starting to organize. They have some leverage. They'll realize they have some leverage, right? That, that you know, amid these massive profits, like now we're talking about inflation, right? And the media is talking about, uh, you know, con the container ships are stuck at sea. And the, basically, it's price gouging. The biggest reason for inflation is price gouging. There was pent-up demand. People didn't spend money last year. A lot of people got money from the from the state, their $1,200 check, or they got $300 a month for our kids. So there was, there was pent up demand. So basically this is price gouging. This is that market that they claim to care about, right? Nobody gave a shit about debts and inflation, you know, before. And for working people, inflation is a real thing. I think people on the left say oh, it's no big deal. No, if you're poor, if you're precarious, six, 7% increase in, in the price of your food and gas is a big deal. But at the same time, that's, that's an example of, of corporate power and corporate, corporate, you know, uh, manipulation. Um, and, and people have to take action against that. And one of the reasons we have that is people aren't going to work in these bullshit minimum wage jobs anymore. They're going to hold out and, you know, as they should. And, you know, the great, the great, the, what do they call it? The great resignation. The great um, resignation. Yeah. Is, is, is that's a, that's a slap at the, at the ruling class and the bosses, yeah. the boss class. So, yeah. you know, more power to those folks, support them however you can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, there's this idea that, you know, like, how dare you turn down my $8 an hour offer to make me millions, right? Uh, and, and people aren't doing it anymore. And, you know, uh, and, and, and one of the things that the, the ruling class does very carefully, you know, very, very successfully is pit people. So, like, basic working people now are mad that other people are too lazy to work, right? Instead of dealing with it. And I think that's that there is some, we've made some movement on that. I think that there are some people now who are more aware. Uh, uh, I mean, I talk to folks around here in Ohio, uh, more so than in Texas, because this used to be kind of a labor area. It's now become very much a Trump area. But even here, people understand that, you know, rich people want to make more money. And one way to do that is to keep your wages as low as possible. 
And so start a union, start a mutual aid group. We, we put out an article last year, I'll, I'll find it, where we just had a whole list of stuff that you could do, you know, starting mutual aid groups, starting unions, uh, creating food banks. I mean, just basic stuff, political stuff. Um, you know, there, there's a lot going on. So we could do a lot of stuff like that. So. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're getting kind of close to our, our end time. Um, you've, you've all heard us, you've all heard about our thoughts on a lot of things from 2021 and going into 2022. Uh, you've been listening to the green and red podcast. I don't know if you have any final thoughts that you want to share, Bob. I mean, no, it's been a, it's been a hard year. I think for everybody I know personally as well, not just like politically, personally, it's been a rough year. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to find hope. Uh, you know, it's been, you know, kind of COVID is still with us not really any better in a lot of ways. Um, the, the, the state is still kind of being hijacked or run by crazies. And, uh, you know, we have to kind of take care of each other at some level. Um, you know, try to be good to each other and be honest and, uh, uh, you know, uh, support, support people who do good stuff and stay away from people who are toxic and uh, don't expect people to change, you know, because they probably won't. Um, you know, uh, there are people doing horrible things because they're horrible people. So, uh, we're probably not going to convert them or fix them. So uh, I don't know, take care of yourself, take care of people around you, get, get around people you, you trust and have good energy and try to try to work. And, and there's no group too small to make a difference. Right. What's that Margaret Mead line about the never doubt that a Never doubt yeah. that a small group of people can change the world because they're the ones, the only ones who ever have. Probably um, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what I'll say is, I am actually a big proponent of small groups, affinity groups, things like that. Uh, you know, get with your friends who you trust and love, and and see what you can do to yeah. make make a little bit of a difference. Um, and while you're doing that, you could have a little group that sits around and listens to the Green and Red podcast, um, and. Uh, I do want to say that we'll be back in 2022 with a whole lot more awesome episodes and interviews and guests and, you know, thoughts from Bob and Scott on like movements and, and politics and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but we're also here on the last day of the year. You're hearing this on the last day of the year. And so what I would say is that you can also donate and support mm -hmm. the Green and Red podcast. Uh, you can go to our website, greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button or you can go to our Patreon page and become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast. We've gotten a number of new patrons lately. You guys are the, we love you. You're the best people ever. Um, just want to put that out there and, and all of our one-time donors, people who are supporting us uh, with whatever they can chip in. Um, I will say that $3, which is less than the cost of a beer uh, a month, makes you a comrade of the green and red podcast and it goes up from there, but like definitely support us, check out our stuff on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and uh, you know, rate and review us on all of the podcast listening platforms, or at least on I iTunes um, and just go out and make a lot of trouble. We're going to be making a lot more trouble in 2022. Stay safe. Solidarity forever. Think globally guillotine locally. Yep. That's our message for 2022. From the town to the nation, we'd like to do a song for you about the larger picture. There's only one season lately. 
There used to be an agreement between the Caesars that they would all come and stay for three months and then go to wherever Caesars go when they're not where we are. Lately there has been no spring, no summer, and no fall. Politically and philosophically and psychologically, there has only been the season of ice. It is a season of frozen dreams and frozen nightmares, a scene of frozen progress and frozen ideas, frozen aspirations and inspirations. They call the season winter. We call the song Winter in America. Had a chance to go home. 
Well, it never had a chance to grow old. If somebody won't know, tell them it's a winner. It's, it's cold, it's like a winter in America. Yes, time when all of the hills, people who can help us done better. city we come from, you know the country that we come from in the season. Now we would like to talk about our music. People say to me, Gil, we cannot find your records. I say, go to your record store, go down to the left, take a turn, go to the right, look on the bottom shelf, 
you will find a box called miscellaneous. We are miscellaneous. We did not mean to be miscellaneous. Somehow it happened. Otherwise, you go in the record store, you go to the right, you go down to the back, you look at a box called jazz, J-A-Z-Z. -Z. I said, this is very good, we are jazz. Then I looked up jazz in the dictionary, and it means miscellaneous. We were not happy. We decided to bring the music to you, to let you decide. What kind of music do we play? The question is called, is that...